Canada and the United States share the largest trading relationship in the world. The two countries also share the longest and most secure border in the world over which two and a half billion worth of goods and services cross daily. We have to remember that Canada and the US, we build things together, but we build things better together. How we tackle decarbonization should be no different. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to Cutting Carbon. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Brian Gutnick. Brian, good day. Good day, Jeff. Excited to continue the dialogue today around policy. Absolutely, and we are, uh, we're very lucky to be joined by Heather Chalmers. Heather is the president and CEO of GE Canada. Heather is also the co-chair of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce Net Zero Council. Heather, welcome to Cutting Carbon. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm thrilled to be part of the discussion. So Heather, I just want to start kind of with a very simple question. Many of our listeners may have heard about some of the policies happening in Canada. There's a lot of discussion about the carbon tax in Canada. But maybe you can start just by telling our listeners about what's going on at the Canadian federal and provincial level when it comes to decarbonization policies. 2021 has been an incredibly important year for decarbonization in Canadian politics and policy, no question. In March, our Supreme Court affirmed the right of the federal government to institute a national carbon price, which is the cornerstone of our decarbonization policy. Our carbon price, which is revenue neutral, is currently $40 a ton and will increase to $50 a ton next year. And by 2030, the government has planned to increase the carbon price to $170 a ton. Also this year, the federal government enacted something called the Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act. This law now enshrines a 2050 net zero target and requires the federal government to set five-year emissions reductions targets starting in 2030 and how we're going to meet those targets. And then finally in September, we had a federal election where Canadians showed they want a federal government to work across party lines to responsibly manage the energy transition and find a pathway to net zero by 2050. So certainly a lot going on in Canadian politics right now. Heather, if I could you know, maybe jump in. Canada is already well on its way in the energy transition with less than 20% of your electricity generation today coming from fossil sources. So huge amount of renewables already. What do Canadians need to know about how this energy transition is going to look? And really for all of our audience, how that transition plays out. First, I would say there needs to be an acknowledgement that getting to net zero is going to be a journey, hence the term transition. While we decarbonize, we also have to ensure that we're generating power that is equitable, affordable, reliable, and sustainable. Second, we will need to massively increase the amount of electricity we generate to get to net zero by 2050, as more sectors of the economy, such as ground transportation and buildings, are transformed through electrification. And I don't think people really understand the enormity of that. Third, I'd say there needs to be an an acknowledgement that the energy transition will look very different to Canadians depending on where they live. 
The existing power generation landscape varies based on what we've been using historically in our varied geographies. As an example, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan have been heavily reliant on fossil fuels, while Quebec and BC have had the opportunity to leverage their vast amounts of hydropower. And then Ontario, over 60% of our electricity is generated from nuclear power. We also have many remote communities that are still reliant on diesel because there frankly are no other reliable options. And this goes back to the equity principle I mentioned earlier. We have to ensure that along this energy transition journey that no one gets left behind in the transition, no matter where they live in our country. And finally, getting to net zero will depend on what resources are realistically available and in what time period. For instance, renewables like wind and solar can't effectively be installed everywhere. And breakthrough technologies like direct air capture will need time to be developed demonstrated at scale and become cost competitive so the ratepayers aren't burdened with untenable cost increases. I think of it as a puzzle with a number of pieces that will come together differently depending on where you live in Canada. That said, I also believe there is an incredible opportunity for Canada because of our rich natural resources, our geology, history of nuclear, our strong academic and AI base and broad-based trade agreements that we can not only lead in the global energy transition, but it's an opportunity to create incredible new green economies or sectors for export. Great. So as we use that as a framework, we think about, you know, what are the types of policies or regulations that are needed in the future that don't exist today? As we think about it, what are the policies that need to be put into place to innovate or to incubate technologies? Are there policies around tax or other financial incentives to draw out this transition? So what can you share us from the Canadian perspective about those topics? Yeah, I have a lot to say here, and and certainly uh, many others do, like the Net Zero Council. I would say there are a number of recommended policies and regulations that need to be in place to accelerate this piecing of the puzzle, if you will, and they need to be at scale. So we start to see meaningful emissions reductions today while laying the groundwork for future as new technologies come to bear. So let's start with the grid. The federal government and the provinces need to work together to support increased grid interconnectivity. Canada today, we have limited inner ties between our own provinces, and this will take serious investments in grid modernization to promote reliability, security, and accessibility from coast to coast to coast in Canada. You know, you said it earlier, tax policy also has a very important role to play. In the US, you've seen rapid deployment of wind and solar through the production tax credit, and the investment tax credit, Canada should look to expand our tax policy to enable rapid deployment of carbon-free technologies as well. Third, I'd say, like in your season three of Cutting Carbon podcast, you had John Lavelle from our offshore wind business speak. Well, Canada has enormous offshore wind potential. And interestingly, this discussion was absent from our recent federal election campaigns. Canada would benefit from a national offshore wind strategy to lay the foundation for how an offshore wind industry could be developed on our east and west coasts. 
Switching gears a bit, you know, I know we've talked a lot about the power sector, but another area where a federal strategy could play an important role is in sustainable aviation. Today, the aviation industry accounts for about 1 or 2% of Canada's emissions. But as you can imagine, over the next, you know, 10 to 20 years, as our economy electrifies and we institute carbon capture solutions, while air travel simultaneously is growing, aviation will become a larger share of our natural emissions. So today we should be putting the building blocks in place to, to tackle that challenge and create a plan of action to improve operations and infrastructure, incorporate sustainable aviation fuels and invest in next generation propulsion technology. So on balance, you know, there's lots of opportunity to use policy and regulation to catalyze needed action in Canada. As I said earlier, and I think you'll see it as a, a theme, I am, I am optimistic that we have the right groups of stakeholders talking and government's willing ear to listen and collaborate. Great. So if we think about that view, those pieces of the puzzle, the tax policy, the incentives, what role does the government or should the government play, especially as we think about investment, right? Government has the power of the purse, whether it's the provincial government, the federal government. You know, do you think there's a role for them for direct investment? Should they be having policies that spur investment? What are your thoughts on on that piece of the puzzle, if you will? You know, whether it's retrofitting existing assets to shared infrastructure such as grid networks or new CO2 pipelines, the infrastructure investment required for the energy transition is massive. You said it, nobody can take this on alone and the government needs to play an important role in bringing together financial institutions, institutional investors in industry to finance the transition. This is also an important area where we need the federal government and their provincial counterparts working together. I would suspect this isn't unique to Canada. You know, ultimately it's it's companies at the behest of the investor community that will that will create the technology to lead the energy transition. I think where government can play a role is acting as a catalyst. So we accelerate it and we do it at scale. You're listening to Cutting Carbon. If you're interested in learning more about today's topic, please check out our show notes. And if you like what you hear, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go back to the conversation. Heather, you highlighted the diversity of natural resources that are abundant across different parts of Canada. Given the importance of the oil and gas industry, particularly in Western Canada, what are the policies that are needed to help them transition? Yes, another very topical discussion. Canada was built on natural resources, and that includes our oil and gas sector, which is a vital piece of our economy. I think the first step is understanding that the oil and gas sector can be an important part of the solution. And the reality is there isn't an energy transition journey that doesn't include some level of oil and gas contributing to our energy sources. I think we have to focus on creating competitive regulatory, fiscal, and policy frameworks that attracts investment in carbon capture and sequestration and hydrogen as two examples, two places I think Canada can play a significant leadership role. You know, we we have some built-in advantages to support the transition in these sectors. 
but we cannot rely solely on those. We need to be proactive to support the transition and recognize that countries like the US and the UK are positioning themselves to be at the forefront on technologies like carbon capture. So similar to my comment earlier, I, I think government needs to step in quickly so that we can accelerate and do things at scale. Great. So if we think about the technologies, and you just talked about two of them, Heather, you talked about hydrogen, and carbon capture and sequestration. You know, if we think about just this continuum of technologies and think about the regional or provincial differences, what are the technologies that that the government, the provinces, the advocates are thinking are kind of needed in Canada? And I get that the technology solutions might differ whether you're in British Columbia, Ontario, or, you know, Alberta. But what are those technology solutions? What are people advocating for? Because of our diverse generation mix of energy from coast to coast to coast, it will be a portfolio of technologies that are going to be required to get to net zero. And some of those examples include small modular reactors. You know, I mentioned earlier that Ontario, our electricity generation, I happen to live in Ontario, is 60% nuclear today. And if you include New Brunswick, we've got two, two of our provinces that are already leaders in conventional nuclear power. Both of them are taking leading roles to advance small modular reactor technology. And what is encouraging is we now see Alberta and Saskatchewan, and now we've got four provinces that have agreed to advance small modular reactor deployment. Net zero is going to need nuclear, and this is an area where Canada has a really promising export opportunity across the nuclear supply chain. For our listeners who are interested in the concept of a small modular reactor, I'd refer them back to an episode in session three with Jay Wildman, who's president of GE uh, Hitachi Nuclear. And you can listen to Jay as he talks about the advantages of small modular reactors and what's the technology behind them. The second technology, and you, you mentioned it, was hydrogen. Last year, a federal government released a national hydrogen strategy and set out a goal to become a top three global producer of clean hydrogen. What was great about this strategy is that it left it open for a role, whether it's blue, green, or pink hydrogen. Also, our biggest provinces have also either released or are working on their hydrogen strategies. The third area, which has um, been talked about a lot, is carbon capture. This is a, and also a space where we could see Canadian leadership. Alberta and Saskatchewan are blessed with the ideal geology and the oil and gas expertise to permanently sequester carbon. We are also expecting a national carbon capture and sequestration strategy to be released soon, which will have an investment tax credit as a key policy lever. And finally, renewables. Two-thirds of our electricity already comes from renewables in Canada. The vast majority of this is hydro. Intermittent renewables will have an important role to play, particularly in distributed power generation scenarios. So these are just a couple of the technologies that I think will be important in Canada's energy transition mix. Certainly not exhaustive, but the ones that you know we spend a lot of time talking about. So Heather, today there's massive cross-border trade between Canada and the U.S. And, and in fact, I believe the U.S. is Canada's largest trading partner. And Canada is the largest purchaser of U.S. exports. So not just about goods, but there's also the flow of electricity across the border. 
The U.S. benefits significantly from hydro resources in Canada today. And I envision, as you think about the energy transition there, those opportunities only increase. Can you maybe share some of your thoughts around that? Canada and the United States share the largest trading relationship in the world. The two countries also share the longest and most secure border in the world, over which two and a half billion worth of goods and services cross daily. And as you mentioned, Canada is the United States' largest customer, and we buy more goods from the United States than China, Japan, and the United Kingdom combined. Canada is also the top trading partner for most U.S. states. That's important, and and I say a lot of times, we have to remember that Canada and the U.S. we build things together, but we build things better together, and that's an important point. How we tackle decarbonization should be no different. If we work collaboratively with integrated supply chains, with aligned policies and regulations, we can be an enviable force that can act quickly and at scale in terms of the energy transition. Today, we trade oil, gas, and electricity regularly across the border. In the future, we also have the opportunity to add critical minerals that are going to be necessary in terms of the technology required for the energy transition, like battery storage and electric vehicles. So, I am cautiously optimistic that we can build on our existing trade arrangements and amplify the "we build things better together." Awesome. So as I think about that, that integration, are there new integrations that could be important? You know, I live in New York, and so I know that the New York ISO and New England have a relationship with Hydro-Quebec with getting power. How do you see that relationship in the future? Do you see other regional integrations across that border in terms of electrical power sharing or the energy transition growing in the future? Yeah, there is a large community of public and private stakeholders, you know, spanning government and utilities in Canada that are speaking to that necessity of building out a vision of regional grids around eastern, central and western, the western grid network clusters to see cross-border power flows that are bidirectional. As you said, an example of this is regional integration with two-way energy flow that could be between Quebec and New York. The government of Quebec has repeatedly stated that it seeks to be the battery of the northeast which means relying on hydropower as a giant storage unit of water power. The difference today being that increased electrification demands for both entities means dispatch on demand on either side. So Heather, at the beginning of our discussion today, you talked a little bit about the importance of the energy trilemma, that balancing of affordability, reliability, and sustainability mm-hmm. for Canada. I think there are some that think that we can achieve the sustainability with no cost increases. How do you think about that, particularly for Canada? This is a really terrific point, and I think it speaks to the opportunity for education, the tremendous amount of education uh, that has to happen with taxpayers and government and many others. You know, there are a couple ways we can look at this. There are the costs that we incur as we transition and there are the costs that we incur if we do not bark on this transition. There are the, the proactive costs that we can take today to invest in the infrastructure and technologies needed to position ourselves for the future, or there are the reactive costs that we will have to pay for after the climate changes. You may not be aware, but we've got a situation right now in British Columbia that's happened this week where we had massive floods that have actually just didn't endanger people, but there was, um, there's been resulting deaths. 
and has also exposed our critical infrastructure. You know, Canada has hundreds of millions of dollars in goods each week that travel from other parts of the country to the West Coast before being exported, and our port now has been disrupted. And this is just one example that we can speak to in terms of the impact of climate change if we continue to do nothing. The final point I'll say is, you know, and I'm a, I'm a mother and you are parents as well, it's not just our economy at stake, but we also have to think about the future of our children and, and subsequent generations. So yes, there are costs. However, and, I, and I've said this a couple of times, that this is also a massive opportunity that exists in terms of creating new sectors. When we all win, if we play this right with you know enabling regulations and policies, the opportunity for the green economy and the job growth that it's going to create for Canada and, and abroad is just insurmountable. Maybe I'll end on, this is where I think GE has a tremendous responsibility. This is going to take technology innovation, technology feats of the likes that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. And if not us, then who? So I am, you know, on balance, I am so bullish on the opportunity for GE and for Canada to play a significant role in the energy transition journey. So, so Heather, you mentioned remote communities in parts of Canada that are still reliant on diesel because there is no infrastructure available to them. As we think about the energy transition, what are your thoughts? What insights can you share with us on, on the role of inclusivity, you know, for all Canadians as we think about decarbonizing and policy and the future of energy? First is, as we move forward on the energy transition, it's important that people have access to reliable, affordable energy, regardless of where they live in the country. That should just be a right. And we're not there yet. Certainly, it's an area of focus, number one. The other piece I would say that we're very focused on is how do we involve and engage those communities in the transition itself? We have, in terms of building a local supply chain and a local workforce, we have engaged and worked very closely with the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Business and the First Nations Power Authority to ensure that they become part of our solution. And I think it's very important that as we start to develop those broader base solutions, whether it's carbon capture, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's small modular reactors, whether it's modernizing the grid, but we do it in, in a way that involves all of those stakeholders and everybody has a voice. And if we do this right, you know, similar to what I've said before, it's an incredible opportunity to, to galvanize the country and to do better. The other piece when we talk about equality or social justice, I think we don't want to lose sight of is that the energy transition is going to take a tremendous amount of innovation and collaboration. And that means really good talent. And so I think countries and companies in Canada, we need to think about what we are going to do to attract to retain, to develop the talent that's going to be necessary to get us to net zero. I think in parallel too, we also have to have a mind to how we're going to reskill 
existing talent in sectors that may be impacted by the energy transition. So while we're we're looking at what's required from a regulatory standpoint, from a policy standpoint, from an investment standpoint, we can't lose sight of the the people that will actually do the work, and that is the talent. And so I think this is something that we have to stay focused on along this journey for sure. Canada's energy transition journey is going to be a mosaic of different technology solutions. I think we have the opportunity to be a leader, not only in terms of the speed of getting to net zero, but also use this as a means to develop new green sectors for the Canadian economy over the long term. Great. Excellent. Heather, as always in these discussions, I learn a lot. Thanks for your insights. I think from what I've heard and what I'm seeing, I think Canada can really be a a model for several other countries and how they're thinking about and, and really leading the energy transition. So thanks again for joining us today and sharing that with our listeners. Well, thank you for having me and allowing me to to share my thoughts. I've listened to your podcast, all of them, and I I get as much out of them as you say you do, probably a lot more. (laughs) On behalf of Brian, the entire podcast team, myself, I want to thank you for for taking time out of your day today and uh, making us all smarter about what Canada is, is doing and how they're thinking about the energy transition. And again, to uh, everyone who's listening in today, if you're a casual listener and want to subscribe, we'd love to, to have you join the ranks of our subscribers. If you have any questions, feel free to drop us a note at cutting.carbon at ge.com. We'd love to hear feedback on this episode, any questions you have on this episode or a previous episode, or if you just happen to have suggestions for the future. And as I say at the close of every episode, thank you all for listening. This is cutting carbon. Thanks for listening. If you want more information about today's episode, check out the resources available in our show notes. I'm your host, Jeff Goldmere, and this is Cutting Carbon.